Hello, welcome in. I am pumped about today's podcast. All right, this is the podcast Builder versus Buyer, and I'm the host, Adam Steiner. What I have for you today on the pod, I've been trying to track down someone from Pretty Good House, a book I recently read, and I have Michael Maines, one of the authors. So, um, awesome home designer, really great convo. Stay tuned for that. But before we get to that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Ultimate Room Layout Guide. Um, it's basically building blocks for a floor plan, a floor plan starter kit, if you will. So I put in there most of my room layouts that I go off of for things like kitchens and great rooms. Um, I have small economical kitchens, then big luxury kitchens. And what I do is I show you common spacing I use. How far is it between the sink and the island? Um, How far are the, the hallways? What's a good size for a bedroom? All that fun stuff is in there. So check it out at roomlayoutguide.com. All right, let's get to the interview. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. For thanks those for having of you me. That don't know you. Who are you, and what do you do? Uh, uh, thanks, th- thanks for having me, Adam. Um, I am Mike Maines. I'm a residential designer in Palermo, Maine. Um, I, in the past, I've been a builder, a cabinet maker, furniture maker, uh, fine home building contributing editor part-time farmer, lots of other things. But these days I stick pretty much with design. Um, and I am co-host and founder of the BS and Beer Show and co-author of the Pretty Good House book. So those those are sort of my my claims to fame. That's awesome. Let's start with Pretty Good House. Um, yeah. So I think there are two books, I think, whether you're building a house or entry-level designer, like you need to read. This is one of them. The other one is Home by Design by Sarah Suzanka. I think those are Fantastic. Um, just basic building blocks for designers. But this is a book, Pretty Good House. Michael Maines, right there. Um, we're in a Facebook group together. And you answered my question. I'm like, I recognize that name from somewhere. And I Googled it. And I messaged <laughs> you privately. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Can you come on my podcast? I've, I've, I've actually talked about your book on the podcast. Um, oh, nice. so this is awesome to have you. Um, so just give me a little bit of background uh, for those that haven't read it about the book, um, how did it come to be and what's it about? Yeah, yeah. So it all started um, 10 or 12 years ago in Port- Portland, Maine. There was a building science discussion group. It's the first thing I know of, of the type, basically a bunch of builders and architects and designer type people uh, uh, got together once a month to discuss building science issues. You know, building science is a relatively new field. And things change really quickly, yet it's an industry that's overall fairly slow to change. And, and a lot of us aren't particularly, you know, big, big fans of school. So uh, um, uh, basically, we would self-educate each other, talk about, you know, what's the best way to vent a roof or to insulate a roof or, you know, waterproof foundations and things like that. Um, and one night, our moderator, Dan Colbert, um, came in and he was working, I think, on his second lead house and some of us were working on passive house stuff and just it all was very seemed very it was hard to get client buy-in it was expensive we questioned like do you really need 12 inches of foam under the slab do you really need a bike rack if you're in the middle of nowhere things like that and he said just what what should we be doing what what should be our baseline for just designing you know not a passive house not an amazing house just just a pretty good house um and so the group of us i think there were probably 35 of us or so in the room um, we, we brainstormed ideas for an hour and a half. Um, I wrote it up at, at the time. Green Building Advisor was a new website, and I was blogging for them. 
So I wrote it up as a blog and posted it. And it was like the most popular blog post of the year and got responses from all over the country um, on sort of regional variations of what it would mean to, uh, to do a pretty good house where you are. You know, uh, rules in Maine may be different than in Southern California or someplace else. Um, and then we did another meeting and I did a follow-up post and it, it just sort of um, kicked around as sort of this alternative idea to the more rigorous programs like Passive House or the sort of checklist heavy programs like LEAD or the government run programs like Energy Star. Those are all good programs, but um, I'm, I'm a fan of all of them, but just uh, none of them have had massive market penetration. And so we just wanted to sort of set our own guidelines that were better than code minimum. I mean, and, and codes then were pretty, pretty crappy. They're getting better. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and so, yeah, um, so that's that's where it started. Um, after a couple of years of that, a few of us started getting together to talk about writing a book. Couldn't get anybody interested. We were all busy. Um, we got as far as 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 like an outline of a course, or not a course, uh, um, an outline of a table of contents. Uh, and the idea sort of died. That was like 2000, I don't know, 2015 or so. Um, at uh, then, what was it? I guess I guess towards the end of the first year of the pandemic, Taunton Press, the publisher of Fine Home Building magazine and a lot of coffee table books on on home design and construction, um, because because I know a lot of uh, people there, they approached me to ask, uh, or, or or they said with the the pandemic, books are actually selling better than they have in years, and it seems like a really good time uh, for this concept, you know, building better. Um, do you want to write a book? And I said, uh, no way can I do it by myself. And so I asked a few friends, um, including Dan, whose idea was in the first place, my friend Emily Mottram, who's an architect and building science educator, and Chris Briley, um, an architect who's also a friend and had been part of the, those original discussions. And we decided, well, and a few others, but it ended up being, being four of us, uh, spent a year and a half writing a book. And with all the challenges of the the, the pandemic, we, uh, or we realized after after our our launch party, we realized we hadn't seen each other in person in two years. So we wrote this entire book without ever meeting in person, which was kind of fun. That's crazy. Um, yeah, and and uh, so it's been out for about eight months now, um, and and yeah, people people seem to like it. Yeah, I what I love about it, what really drew me to it was, so in the industry. Uh, I think most clients don't really know anything about high-performing homes. They think insulation and windows, and that, that's it doesn't really get much past that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those in the industry, they hear things like passive house and lead, and a lot of them think, okay, my clients can't ever afford that. And that's so, so much, like you mentioned, that's so, so much money, so, so much time and effort. Um, what, why is it even worth it? And then it defaults back to um, a code minimum house, right? Right. Um, where, yeah, I, I think there's so much room for your approach of like, better is good, right? Let's, let's make, let's take what we know about the code and focus on the things that we know can be better at reasonable costs or, um, you know, relatively affordable means and not have to go all the way. And I don't want to bash passive house or lead either. That's where a lot of the science comes from. And that's where a lot of the technology comes from, um, but we don't need to go all the way to that extent to have a lot better product for the end user and humans in general. Um, talk to me about, um, so 
in or, yeah go ahead or just briefly to, or to sort of illustrate your point um i i like to describe it as as home performance and performance means not just thermal performance but it's 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 everything um, about the house is it durable is it resilient does it cost too much to heat can it be made easily comfortable things like that um it's sort of a bell curve if you think of like existing houses are often at the lower end of the bell curve and then leadership programs like lead and passive house um are at the upper end and definitely drive the industry like i mean um, I, I love passive house i used to work work for a a passive house panelizing company just it's a it's a great program it's just not particularly affordable um so what we're doing with a pretty good house is sort of targeting that middle of the giant bell curve if we can take that middle of the bell curve and slide it forward a little bit, then we could potentially have more impact than Passive House pulling their end of the of things forward. But without Passive House pulling things forward, we wouldn't know what to do or know where we're trying to get to. So uh, uh, we definitely definitely think of them as mutually beneficial programs. Not all Passive House people agree, but I'm pretty good house fans uh, mostly, or mostly yeah. appreciate what pa Passive House is doing. It's just, does 12 inches of insulation under the slab, does that... Um, is that the best cost benefit? I think out, out of all of the other programs out there, um, and, and there are lots of them and, and they're all good, I, I, I don't know of any other one that considers cost as part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And between, you know, as my between years as a, as a builder and a designer, I've done something like 600 projects. Every single one has had a budget. So there's this big disconnect of, of requiring these sort of arbitrary targets that may be great, but the reality is every construction project has a budget. And so we're trying to basically say, keep making improvements as long as they make financial sense. And when they stop making financial sense, then, you know, put your money elsewhere. Yeah. I love that. I design for a lot of people whose budget is 500 to 700 at, mm -hmm. at lead levels. That does not give you much house. That's, you know? that's tight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, barely a house at all. So um, the specifics um, of, high performance homes and the pretty good house. You mentioned like it's more than just energy efficiency, right? And I think the biggest single thing I see misunderstood or not understood at all, not factored at all is, is water vapor. I, I feel mm -hmm. like that's a very high priority in your book and a very mm -hmm. low priority in a client's mind when they're building mm -hmm. a home. Um, if a factor at all, um, talk to me about, managing water vapor in a home and the approach you guys took in the book. Yeah. Well, first, I think um, building science nerds uh, care a lot about water vapor, and we tend to actually care a little too much because it's not one of the most important things to worry about. Uh, basically, every every home, every building envelope, wherever you are, um, you need to think about four different layers of control. And, and these aren't like a specific material performing the duties of a layer is sort of just these are the are the things you need within your wall um uh, the most important is is bulk bulk water control you know so like on the walls a a w r b it's actually not the cladding the the cladding is the primary line of defense but it's actually not the most important because some water will always get through the cladding yeah um, and, and, and so you want a really bulletproof w r b which is a water-resistant barrier or weather-resistant barrier, depending on, on your preference. Um, and um, then you want air control. So a lot of energy loss, up to 50% of an average home's energy loss is through air leaks. And a lot of moisture issues actually result as um, 
uh, because of air leaks, you know, people say homes have to breathe and they really don't. Buildings don't need to breathe at all. The occupants need to breathe. Uh, the building needs to be able to dry. Um, and, and so you would think poking a bunch of holes in the house through air leaks would help it dry. And it does in certain seasons, but not in other seasons. So basically we, we think, and most, most building scientists think it's best to um, uh, make a house relatively airtight and relatively is, is a moving target, but just you know, relatively airtight. That's the next most important line. Um, the least most important, as much as interesting as, um, as it is, is thermal control. You don't want to consider thermal control, which is insulation, until you have these other things solved for. So in the number three, three slot is water vapor. So uh, once, you've made a house, once you've made a house airtight, you'll still have vapor drive. So basically, air is always trying to go from relatively warm and moist to relatively cool and dry. So here in the north, um, heating dominated climate, it's almost always trying to, air is almost always trying to push from indoors out. Um, if you're down south or if you're up north uh, and running air conditioning, then you probably have outdoor air trying to get in. And uh, that air carries a certain amount of moisture. And as that air diffuses through, if it's, if it's, if it's airtight, then you've already most, most of this air, air movement and moisture transfer. But um, uh, just, just the uh, difference between warm and, warm and moist and cool and dry, um, air, uh, moisture will move through diffusion. So essentially moisture will, uh, will move right through drywall, right through insulation, right through plywood or OSB. And uh, as it moves through the assembly, once that moist, moisture that's sort of dissolved within the air uh, hits a cool enough surface, so a surface that's below the dew point temperature, it will condense. And until it condenses, it's not really a problem. But once it does condense, then you have liquid, liquid water uh, that uh, uh, will, you know, uh, result mold and microbial action, rot, you know, rot, mold, uh, things we don't want. So we, so, so we do need to worry about vapor diffusion. And uh, one reason we talk about it a lot in the book is um, there's sort of conventional assemblies, like um, build, building a leaky house is not a good route towards uh, keeping the house dry. But when you have a poorly insulated wall, and you have a lot of heat energy, whether it's inside or outside, that heat pushes moisture through. And so it can keep a pretty crappy assembly safe because it's uh, basically you're baking the moisture out of the assembly. Once you re if you want to do high performance assemblies uh, that have more R value, um, as you should, it, it results in greater uh, comfort for the occupant. It means you can downsize mechanical systems. You can have um, healthier air. It's all good stuff, except you lose that heat energy pushing moisture through the wall. And so it just means, um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing high performance assemblies. It just means that the details matter more than they do with a poorly insulated house. So, so, so as you add insulation, it becomes more important to understand what's happening with, um, or with water vapor um, and controlling it. And control it can be stopping it entirely. It can be letting it flow right through. Usually it's something in between that you're understanding what's happening in different seasons, different conditions, and, and you're using high performance membranes to help control things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's very interesting. So I'm, I'm at an interesting area of the country. So we're right by Chicago mm -hmm. where I think we are pretty close to the break even point between heating and cooling. So mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty even through a year that we have, a lot of heating dominated months and a lot of cooling dominated months. Um, 
So yeah, are 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 our assemblies more tricky being in an area like this? Um, uh, I I'd say yes, yes, or uh, tricky, or or just more complicated. And complicated is also interesting, so it's not necessarily yeah. scary. It's just there. It's 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 a more dynamic situation. We're actually like that here uh, here in the the northeast. We have uh, cool, cool, dry winters. Um, but summers are getting hotter and 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 wetter, and so people are using air conditioning a lot more. Like last summer, we had a dew point of seventy uh, uh, something degrees, which is just incredibly high. Uh, it's it's basically Miami level dew points, and dew points, as you know, are, that's that's the temperature at which water will condense. So just when you have a really high dew point, it's it's when it's really uncomfortably muggy and humid. Um, uh, yeah, and and so in a climate like yours, half the year you have that relatively warm, moist air from the interior trying to get outside. And then the other half, you have warm, moist air outside trying to get inside. And so you need to, and, 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 and there's a lag. So uh, things don't, usually don't move through the assembly super quickly. It can take hours, days, or even weeks sometimes for moisture to build up to the point where it's an issue. Um, so just, you need to understand What's happening? Um, hydrothermal modeling is a is a big word, but it's it's just um, hydro meaning water, thermal meaning heat. So it's just just understanding the relationship of heat and moisture. And there are models you can use that sort of predict a performance for, for any location. So um, I tend to use uh, uh, or uh, so when uh, when in doubt, you can always have somebody really smart do a a, a th- Therm is one brand, Therm, T-H-E-R-M. Um, uh, FIAS, the uh, Passive House US, has their uh, uh, Woofy Passive um, hydrothermal model that's very accurate. Um, those can tell you whether or not your assembly will dry before it becomes a problem. Um, I, I tend to keep things simple with, or just across the board, and one of my simple things is using uh, building codes. Actually, it's kind of buried in the building code, and it's all based on Building Science Corp research. But essentially, there are safe, safe assemblies based on ratios. So if you have a certain amount of exterior insulation, then you can do this on the interior, or vice versa. But it 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 can get tricky, um, and a lot of people just sort of hit it with a blunt object to fix it, which means using closed cell spray foam because that stops most water vapor or it slows it to a, to an extreme crawl in both directions. Um, but it can also cause problems and there are downsides to it. Um, so that's that's not always the best answer. Sometimes it is, but um, it's, it's usually possible to design an assembly with different membranes and insulations that is safe in, in, in all seasons. Yeah, interesting. Um, sorry, dove into the deep end there with the, I just really want to hear. I can, I can geek out. So, uh, feel free to rein me in if you need to. <laughs> no, no, no. I, first question on water vapor. Here we go. Yeah. Um, no. So I wanted to circle back. You mentioned something cause I saw Steve Bazek speak at IBS and he mentioned something very similar in high performance design. I think he had a different number, but basically the items you consider when designing a home and very last is insulation. Yeah. Um, I think he had seven things instead of your four, but it was basically the same thing. Like his first, his first four were all either bulk water or site water or drainage, surface drainage, things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is misunderstood as well. Um, I've been trying a lot lately to 
simplify roofs. Um, mm. Minimize the transition, minimize the valleys, minimize the transitions between walls and roofs. Um, yeah, good builders should be able to seal those. But I think, um, yeah, that's what are your it's, thoughts? It's it's tricky. No, it's um, it's it's hard to design a really attractive house that looks like a box with a few small windows, but that's going to be the house that's the easiest to build and performs the best. So if you yeah. can design just a cube cube type house or a Cape Cod type house with a few small windows, then that's going to be the easiest way to get high performance, but you're not going to make a living as a designer for people who want houses with a lot of articulation on the facade and in the roofs. And, and when you have a larger house, especially roofs can get pretty enormous. So one way to make an enormous roof look better is you break it up into a bunch of smaller roofs, but it's, um, it, it can be a little harder to, uh, to build those um, in terms of framing and plywood, but builders know how to do that. But when it gets down to the energy details, or not energy, but just the details that matter in terms of energy and moisture control and moisture meaning uh, uh, liquid or vapor water, um, uh, the more corners you have, the more changes of plane, whether it's walls or roofs, but it's especially tr tricky on roofs. Um, a good example, I'm actually just, I'm just wrapping up an addition uh, for my mother-in-law. Uh, and uh, I, it's, uh, it's an addition on the north side of a very simple house. And I included a gable dormer, basically, that creates a valley on the north side. And, uh, and to, um, I used a vented roof system. I almost always use vented roofs when I can. Vented roofs are less prone to ice dams because they keep the roof surface cold. But we just had 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 a pretty snowy stretch here, um, and she has ice dams and has a little drip on the inside. And so if I can't build, a, I mean, we're not saying I'm amazing, but just I know what I'm doing. If I can't design a valley that will be ice dam resistant, then your average builder doing a code minimum work is going to really struggle with building a valley that can you know, you know, withstand ice dams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great lesson. Anybody looking at a floor plan or you're working with a custom designer or architect, if, if you're seeing lots of little areas where materials are changing a lot, like that's where your house is going to leak first. <laughs> yes. Guaranteed. Yes. And, and just, I've, I've done most of my career. I mean, I've, I've done a few new houses, new construction, and I occasionally design new houses, but most of my work has been renovations and there are a few places. Let me just, uh, uh, I've seen hundreds of homes uh, torn apart and there's a few places that there, there are always, always water issues. And so just, you know, tr 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 um, and, and actually some of the worst houses are houses built in like the eighties and nineties when we were starting to use, you know, more permeable or less permeable materials, you know, OSB hit the market, which is less permeable than plywood, which is less permeable than board sheathing. We were using, um, uh, uh, polyethylene on the interiors and just I, I, I see a lot of moisture issues. Um, build, buildings are pretty durable inherently so um, I think I think it's a problem with people who primarily do new construction is most moisture issues I would say don't even show up for 10 years. So like you may not know you may have built 100 houses and not realize that you have the, the that you're repeating this one bad detail over and over again because you don't even know it's a problem until uh, you probably changed careers by then. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really important to understand what's happening with water. Water's the enemy. It's, it's just, yeah. you know, across the board. Um, yeah. I've, I've worked for a lot of doctors and it's often a joke uh, that to them, water is everything. And to me, water is the enemy. <laughs> right. It's like 90% of what builders think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> no matter where it is in the house. 
Um, so um, I feel like we've been fighting this fight for 15 years. A lot of the, like you mentioned, the 80s and 90s, a lot of builders were forced to do things, the homes that then caused mold problems. And they're like, okay, all this energy efficiency stuff is stupid. We're making homes too tight. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned air sealing. What's, what's a good method to really dial that in and have a healthy home and not be fighting this fight of the, the homes are too tight and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, it's really hard to change an industry and I think we're kind of fools for even trying, but uh, we're trying. And I think, I, th- I think we are, are having a little impact and we not just being the authors of the book, but just uh, those of us across the board doing building science education, just there's a lot of information to try to disseminate. Um, I think I've tried about every method there is on new construction. Um, I'm really, I've really become a fan of, um, of airtight uh, sheathing, keeping the air air control layer at the the uh, sheathing. That's often uh, a, a tape, taped zip sheathing. Uh, sometimes it's plywood sheathing with 3M tape. Sometimes it's a fully adhered WRB, um, such as Henry uh, VP1 or Henry uh, Henry Blueskin VP100 or you know uh, Sega Marex SA. You know any uh, many of those self-adhered uh, WRBs. Um, they, they 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 tend to be expensive, but they're good for certain situations. Um, uh, uh, basically, with or or within a wall, you need to have at least one really good air control layer. You can have multiple good air control layers, um, but you want at least one good one. Basically, the, uh, the more air control within a wall, the better. People often, even even architects and builders, confuse air control and vapor control. They're, they can be combined in the same material, but they're really best kept or best thought of as, as two distinct things. So you want good air control. Um, you can you can spray foam a wall and get, and get good air sealing, but when you're spray foaming a wall, what you're air sealing is mostly the middle of a sheet of plywood with a couple of joints. You're not, with spray foam, you're not getting to all the transitions around the edges where the plate meets the sheathing or the rim joist meets the mud sill, or that is it's spray foamable, but just there's a lot of locations within the house that the air leak, most air leaks come through the transitions, not through the middle of the wall. So yeah, that's where right. I, I don't, I don't like relying on spray foam for air control because I think taping your sheathing, it's easy, it's visually inspectable. It's, do, it's, 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 it's do, doing a lot of things at once. Um, I think using a blower door is super important. Just, it should be something I think I think it is becoming more standard, but just it's something that you know builders should should really own their own blower door. It's expensive, but no more than like a really good table saw. Um, so just have a blower door and use it. I guarantee it's 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 one of those things um, uh, that if you measure it, you'll improve it. Um, it becomes this this like competitive thing. I mean I mean like I used to like to see how many. Uh, dovetails could I cut by hand and like I built a desk once with 88 hand cut dovetails and wow. it was I was like okay I, I don't care if I ever cut a dovetail again I've mastered that little piece of craftsmanship and I think air, air sealing is is a similar similar level of craftsmanship I think people really underappreciate it but I think it's just as important what's actually actually way more important than being able to cut a good hand cut dovetail is is is, is being able to make an airtight home um, and, and a blower door is the tool that helps you get there. There are others. You can use an infrared camera. You can use a smoke stick. Um, uh, those are all, all helpful, but the base tool of a, of a blower door, depressurizing or pressurizing the house or both, just really helps you find all those air leaks quickly. 
Um, if you if you have an existing house, uh, the other I think material I haven't used it yet, but I think Arrow Barrier. Um, I've heard, heard very few negative things that, aside from it being somewhat expensive, but as it gets used more often, it'll be more common. It's just um, aerosolized acrylic. So it's, it's interesting. Acrylic is, is the glue in the tapes we use and things like that. And it's just uh, used in conjunction with a blower door. They depressurize the house, spray this fine mist, and, uh, and the mist tries to find all the gaps. And as it hits those gaps, uh, they get sealed up. And so you basically just just tell the technician how um, how tight you want your house, and they keep keep spraying until it, uh, um, until the house is 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 that tight. I think it's uh, it's relatively expensive if you don't if you're if you're only looking at short term return on investment, or if you have the skills or know somebody with the skills to do old school air sealing, then it may not be the best value. But if you're in some place with a shortage of of, of, of skilled tradespeople, which is most places at this point. Um, I think I think having somebody uh, come and set up a contraption for a few grand, you can get an airtight house. It's going to have all kinds of, of benefits. Yeah. And then, so the home breathing yeah. um, is really what we talked about earlier, where it's, it's really, you, you want your home to breathe in that you want to manage water vapor and not trap it in the walls. And that was the issue um, with homes being. I'm you for those of you in the podcast. I'm using <laughs> all this breathing and too tight. Um, so, yeah, I I think paying attention to that can be really the key to unlocking a lot of these, a lot of these designs. And that's really well explained in the book here, Michael. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, um, I wanted to jump to so. Um, we are both, no, no, no. Let me do, I have some questions written down here. <laughs> I just jumped away. Um, so I, I'm having a little bit of a chicken or the egg scenario. Like I haven't done too many homes where the client and or builder wants to spec out high performance, um, systems or design or really anything. Um, so chicken or the egg scenario, are you looking for clients that want high performance homes or are you talking your clients into high performance design? <laughs> That's an excellent question. And I'd say, um, uh, I have a really hard time talking people into into it on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And that's part of why I'm pretty active online um, prom uh, promoting uh, best practices and um, in terms of this stuff is that I get tired of trying to get this one person at a time. I'd rather have them come to me knowing that this is the kind of work I do. Um, and that seems to be relatively effective. Um, in writing the book, we were really trying to intentionally, or we discussed, is this, is this a handbook for professionals? Is this a handbook for builders? Is this a handbook for architects and designers? Is it, is it, is it a syllabus for a college class? You know, what is it? And we decided that the best route was actually, uh, you mentioned Sarah Suzanka. Um, uh, basically, we uh, realized that when her books first came out back in the early two, 2000s, every every designer and architect would, or or at least the authors, and I think um, most I know um, clients would come in with, with Suzanka's book under their arms saying, can you uh, design a not so big house? Yeah, right. Um, there are lots of critics about, you know, how much good she's actually done because you're basically talking, you know, somebody out of a 4,000 square foot house into a 3,800 square foot house with more expensive details and things like that. But it's, it's the general approach of, 
of driving demand instead of instead of convincing supply that it, that if people are asking for smaller houses or people are asking for better houses, then the professionals will respond. Um, so and, and then so that's sort of we we targeted the book or wrote it as if as if if we're writing to our potential clients with enough technical information that most builders and and designers should get uh, plenty pl plenty plenty of information as well. Um, it's also because we found found that we were um, uh, saying the same things to every client over and over and over again, and it gets kind of tiring. So basically, it's okay. Read the book if you agree. Then let's talk further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, right. And we wrote it, or not just for us. It's it's for everybody. It's for you to give your clients or recommend clients read. And if if they're on board with the principles, or just as 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 an initial education, we were trying to sort of explain why this stuff is important. So. Th it's, it's, it's much less about uh, do this, you know, how, how we do have um, examples of things you should do, but for the most part, it's less about what to do and more about why why these things are important to consider. And and, and a lot of them um, have always been important, uh, uh, but others are just usually not considered when you're designing a new house. Yeah. I think the book does a great job at talking to both audiences, actually. Like, um no, I don't need thermal break explained like at this point in my career, but there are clients that do. Mm -hmm. um, but then also your details for a, like an acting professional like myself, your details are gold. Like to have all those in there um, and be able to reference them based on climate and everything is really, really awesome. So um, oh, thank you. I would say well done. Um, shifting gears a little bit. So we are both civil engineers turned home designers. Um how has that, well, you've, have you ever practiced civil engineering? Uh, uh, no, not really. Um, okay. Same here. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, yeah, I got yeah. a degree and then immediately went to home design. Yeah. Um, and then you did more building and cabinet making and, and things like that. Um, but yeah. how has that affected your design, um, thoughts, style, anything like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Basically, I I did that because I wanted, or when I was eighteen, I decided I wanted to be a timber framer like Ted Benson uh, at Bensonwood, uh, yeah. and so I went and talked, or I went and and his engineer um, and operations manager basically uh, talked talked with me about about potential routes and said I should study architectural engineering, and that's that's what I did. Um, uh, so I have I have most of a civil engineering most of a civil engineering degree, but it's actually a general engineering degree with a minor in art history that is most of an art history degree. So it's it's almost a dual major, but not not accredited in any way. So I can't just go out and practice. But it's also I was I was really tired of school by the end of that. Most of my classmates went on to grad school, and I um, I decided to be a carpenter, um, or which I had been doing since I was you know fourteen anyway. So it was it was, it was natural. Um, I, I think the engineering education, um, the, the downside to not getting an architectural education in this field is is that sort of studio experience and really being exposed to just super creative ideas and the whole creative process. So I've sort of had to figure out that stuff on my own. And still, most of my favorite architects went to, or or most of my favorite architects and designers have that experience of of the studio and just uh, thinking extremely creatively. So not having that experience, I feel like you know. I tend to design more utilitarian stuff. It may be more, more historically based or conventional uh, versus avant-garde. 
Um, it's it's not sculpture like a lot of architects are designing sculpture you live in, which is just amazing, and that's that's not my route. Um, but most people don't want to live in a piece of sculpture. They want to live in an affordable, comfortable, safe, durable house. And I feel like an engineering degree, that sort of problem solving and distilling and understanding why you're doing things and being naturally uh, or naturally frugal. Like a uh, freshman year um, engineering course, intro to engineering course, I still remember it was, uh, uh, this was like, I think, I think literally the first thing I learned about engineering in college was that a good engineer is cheap and lazy. Uh, because because an engineer is trying to find the most cost-effective way to solve a problem and the least labor-intensive way to, uh, to solve the problem. This still meets the program, but you're not trying to you know do things upside down and backwards. And I feel like that ties right, right in with sort of traditional design. You know, most 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 good builders are naturally or naturally understand engineering. It's just it's it's really just um, do you, um, do you understand all the math or not? That's yeah. the only difference, a difference between a good builder and a good engineer. Yeah, right. I I find myself in a really similar boat. Um, so got an engineering degree, immediately went to work for my father's home building business. And so I'm a engineer designer trained by a builder. So you can see, like, I feel that that too, like my designs are more utilitarian. I, I can't help but think about spans in the first draft. Like, yeah. You know, the very first thing I'm like, hey, what joist do you want to use? You know, asking <laughs> the client in the first meeting. Um, but I've I've come to find like back to what we were saying about cost. Every client has a budget and nobody wants to spend their budget on lumber. Like, let's make as pretty of a home as we can. But think about all the utilitarian aspects so that it works mm-hmm. um, and is clean and simple to build and. Um, so yeah, I find a lot of the clients I get are people that want that stuff. Like I post a lot of content on TikTok and things about like, here are some, um, cost saving tips in your build or, um, you know, what's the value engineering, value engineering tips and and stuff like that. So people are like, especially builders are like, Oh yeah, let's, let's do that more, (laughs) you know? Um, and yeah, I've never been asked to be the, the sculpture designer. Um, you know, no one's come to me and been like, Hey, make me a, make me an art piece. Um, but I, I think there's a place in the world for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's, um, I can just easily talk about all the downsides of a, of an architectural education that, um, that I think, I think people like you and I are freed of or, or, or which is like the instinctive need uh, to do s- uh, stuff new and different that that's just, I um, you're not doing your job unless you're inventing something. And it's like, uh, there, or there's a lot of good assemblies and designs out there. There, there. You don't absolutely have to reinvent uh, the wheel every time, and and the architect is not God. It's just uh, the architect is the is on the planning end of the process, and the builder is on the um, execution end. And it's just two two sides of a coin. Um, one th- or one thing in the book we did talk about. I wrote uh, the chapter about teams, and and it's it it's um, about that. For this kind of construction, um, it, it's 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 not really possible to do it the old school way, which is like you design or have a design that you send out for bid to ten different builders and you take the low bidder, or or buy plans out of a book and have the um, a local builder build them just as they are. It's, it it really requires a team. You know, um, houses are extremely complex. You know, you have a, a manual for your toaster, 
uh, which is a pretty simple machine, but you don't have a manual for your house, which is extremely complicated. Yeah. Um, so, so, you, so you really want to consider the, um, or the designer, architect, or designer uh, of the builder, and 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 everybody on both of those teams, and then the client, who is also responsible for financing and the ultimate decision maker. Those are three legs of a stool, and they really all need to be considered and balanced, and equally important. Um, or one person may serve multiple roles. Like you can have a designer who's also a builder. A lot of of great projects are designed by the builder. Um, I'm a lot of or a lot of great designers can also build. Sometimes homeowners get involved in one or both, but it's just those those three elements, the design element, the client and funding, and then the builder are, are, are all equally important. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big, for those that listen to me know, I'm a big believer in that system as well. Um, it just makes, I, the buy a plan or hire someone to draw you a plan and then send it to 10 builders. I don't think those people are getting the best build or the best house um, or even the best deal, honestly. Um, yeah. I think it's, it works out so much better if uh, yeah, you can have everybody on the same page. Oh yeah. No. Or, and to be clear, I'm not saying pre-designed plans are bad. I'm actually working on my own set of pre-designed plans. I think pre-design is, is a good way. Um, it can be very expensive to have every project custom designed. So um, having a pre-designed plan is uh, can be a good good place to start, but it really needs to be tailored and 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 fit the local conditions, and and the project goals. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, talk to me. So you mentioned in the very beginning, BS and beer. Yeah. What's that? What are you guys doing? <laughs> so uh, BS and beers. Um, so the discussion group I mentioned, uh, where Pretty Good House was born. Um, I used to live in Portland. Maine where that was it, and just it became really my social event of the month was or was going to that and then my wife and I moved to be closer to our parents which is about an hour and a half away from Portland and I was still going down occasionally but it's just that's a long route uh, for a social thing especially when you're trying to save the planet uh, justifying driving uh, three hours to go hang out with friends and drink beer it seemed kind of silly um, and I was having trouble getting a good local network um, in my new area which is very rural um, and you might have noticed I do stutter. I, I've, I've struggled with stuttering my entire life. It used to be much worse, and I just I wanted some experience speaking in front of people. So I decided, or I tried to find a local place where I could start a similar group to what they have in Portland, which is at a building suppliers. Uh, uh, because I'm in a rural area, we don't have, have event centers and things. But Maine's first microbrewery is 10 minutes away. So I um, started inviting people there once a month to have a similar discussion, just an open open discussion. I would I would basically give a little lesson, you know, 20 minute lesson on something. And then we'd have, you know, anywhere from uh, usually 10 to 25 people, sometimes less, sometimes more, but uh, uh, we would have a discussion. And uh, I find that beer, beer and building science just seem to go together, which is unfortunate for anybody who doesn't drink because it can be a little bit of a dividing thing. So. Um, but um, anyway, I decided to call it BS and beer, building science and beer. So just uh, the name just popped into my head, uh, 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 BS and beer, because there was also plenty of chit chat for uh, uh, for the BS portion. Um, and that was a lot of fun for a couple of years. Um, I posted about it, posted about it online occasionally, and a builder Travis Brungart in Kansas City 
picked it up, thought it was a great idea. He started doing it locally and he's really good on social media and just uh, um, his company is Catalyst Construction. And just uh, there couldn't be a more perfect name than Catalyst for Travis. Just he's, uh, 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 he really catalyzes everybody around him. Um, and so when the, when the pandemic started, we um, obviously stopped meeting locally um, and and my friend Emily Martram, uh, 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 one of our co-authors, she's an architect about an hour away from me. She was also having trouble getting uh, to the Portland groups. Um, we decided to, to to have a Zoom just to check in on our friends, make sure uh, sure everybody was doing okay. And uh, uh, that was popular. And we did it again, invited Travis, who promoted it like crazy. And then all of a sudden we had a national audience and then we started you know sort of describing the local groups and other groups started popping up so now there's uh, we did it every week with it with expert guests all through through the uh, pandemics so, uh, 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 so just we had had a lot of top-notch guests uh, Steve Bazek was on two or three times uh, Christine Williamson was on several times lots of other just great great folks um, and that's all on YouTube under under BS and Beer, or you can go to the BS and Beer Show dot org or com. One of those I forget. But um, anyway, it's it's sort of an outgrowth of that original group, and now there's uh, we've scaled back to once a month on the Zoom platform, and there are somewhere around twenty local groups all over the U.S. and one in uh, uh, Billabong outside of Melbourne, Australia. Potentially one coming in Sydney, Australia. Uh, one starting in Vancouver, Canada, I think. Um, so just it's it, it seems to be um, it's it, it's still just like it always was. It's a great way for building professionals and interested homeowners to get together to talk about this complicated new field called building science. And uh, sometimes it's more like a drinking club where you might talk about buildings. Sometimes it's more like a class where there may be some snacks. Um, uh, 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 there isn't a a set format. Um, there's no ownership over the terms, um, so you can start your own group, call it whatever you want, use BS and Beer, Beer and BS, whatever you want. It doesn't matter. So just we just just like the idea of of, of promoting building science education. That's awesome. That's really cool. I have to make it to one of these. Or start my yeah. own chapter or something. Yeah, yeah. There's um, uh, I'm trying to think which one is closest to what one just started in Chicago, um, but that might that's still probably a little ways from you. I'm like 45 minutes from the city. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, uh, most most of the groups are on Instagram. That that's become sort of the main um, uh, platform. So it's like uh, BS and Bear North Chicago, something like that. Uh, type that in. Um, uh, they've got, gotten together two or three times now. Awesome. Yeah, I'll check that out. Sweet. Um, Michael, do you have any thoughts? Final thoughts? <laughs> um, covered them all? I I feel like we could have another three hours on the building science stuff. Yeah. <laughs> if we yeah, wanted no, it's, to. <laughs> it's, or, well, we have, I mean, I think about it. On, on the BS and Beer show, we have something like 200 we probably have three to 400 hours of programming there now, um, all free and very few repetitions other than my stuttering. So it's, it's, uh, that there's a lot to talk about in the world of building science. Um, I agree, but, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, the book again, let's get this on camera. Pretty good house. 
Um, where can people get it if they want to buy it? Um, it is published by Taunton Press, and you can buy it directly through their website. Um, you can get it on Amazon uh, or pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, local bookshops can all get it. It's all all national distribution. That's awesome. Um, and oh, and we are we actually just before this we just met and uh, finally finally made the final decision that we are going to write a second book called Pretty Good Renovations because because this book is really more about principles. And it's way easier to talk about principles when it's new construction. Totally. Uh, yeah. People always ask us about renovations and it's just, it's like, Ooh, that's hard, but uh, we're going to tackle it. Um, so look for that in a year or so. That's awesome. And where can people find you if they want to reach out? They can go to mainsdesign.com. So M A I N E S design.com. Um, uh, I'm pretty active on Green Building Advisor. I answer a lot of Q&A questions there. Um, um, I get a lot of direct um, requests or for consulting, just mini consulting, and and I find that's a hard business model. So I so I or I direct people to to GBA where my effort and others' efforts can reach a lot more people um, on social media at Michael Mains. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. This is awesome. Thank you. Check out the book. It's great. And that wraps up today's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe, whatever you're listening at, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, whatever platform you're on. Uh, leave us a rating on iTunes would be awesome. And if you want to follow along with me, I'm doing a lot of stuff on Instagram and TikTok. My handle for both of those is at Burnham Design Co. B-I-R-N-A-M Design Co. Uh, floor plan tips, home building advice, all that fun stuff. So sometimes do some lives and everything. So follow along there. Again, thank you for listening. Have an awesome week, weekend, whenever you're listening to this. Have an awesome time. Okay, bye.